0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, today is World Cancer Day. We'll go over lung cancer treatment options that are available to someone who is newly diagnosed.
1: There are factors associated with their cancer and then there are factors associated with them as an individual. So, we can talk about things that are best for a given cancer in terms of treatment options.
0: Then we'll talk about the impact a low-carbohydrate diet may have on the prognosis for someone with a malignant brain tumor.
1: The
2: idea with The dietary maneuvers is you're trying to starve the tumor, so it's a different way at getting at a tumor cell.
0: And we'll hear the latest recommendations for how to prevent different types of cancer. Eat a healthy diet,
3: meaning plenty of fruits and vegetables. Avoiding obesity, limiting red
0: meat. All that and a selection from our healing muse coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air. Your chance to explore medicine, science and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host Amber Smith. This week we mark World Cancer Day with cancer experts from Upstate. We'll explore whether a low carbohydrate diet can impact the prognosis for someone with a malignant brain tumor and we'll hear the latest advice about how to prevent different types of cancers. But first, we'll go over the various lung cancer treatment options available today. A century ago, people diagnosed with lung cancer had few options. Surgery meant cutting open the patient's chest and removing an entire lung. And while sometimes that type of procedure is still necessary today, surgeons are much more likely to operate through tiny incisions to remove just a lobe or a piece of a lobe or something in addition to or instead of surgery. Here to discuss this is Dr. Jason Wallen. He's the Medical Director for the Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate and the Division Chief for Thoracic Surgery. Welcome. Thank you, Amber. So lung cancer remains the most common cause of cancer death in both men and women. Um, Do you see people with the new diagnosis of lung cancer every week? Is it that
1: Usually several patients each week. It's still really, really common, unfortunately. Particularly in upstate New York, there's still a lot of smokers here, so we still see uh, probably a disproportionate amount.
0: And a lot of it is tied to smoking. That's correct.
1: There are other risk factors, but smoking remains the dominant risk factor.
0: So which kind of lung cancer, because there's different types of lung cancer, which one is the most prevalent?
1: Non-small cell lung uh, carcinoma is the most prevalent, and there are several subtypes within that.
0: Okay. And for patients with lung cancer, non-small cell, or other kinds, from what I understand, the best type of care is called multidisciplinary care, which Upstate and many academic medical centers offer. But what, what is that?
1: So these days, we most of us feel that complicated decisions on cancer care should not be made made by a single doctor. Uh, So we have what we call a multidisciplinary team, as you said, where we have medical oncologists who are the doctors who give chemotherapy, we have radiation oncologists, the doctors who give the radiation, we have the surgeons, we have the pathologists, the radiologists who read the x-rays, the pulmonologists who study lung function and help make diagnoses, uh, as well as smoking cessation, experts, nutritionists, uh, social workers, uh, a really wide variety of Of people who are involved in lung cancer care from almost every aspect uh, looking at a patient from a kind of 360 complete perspective so that we really make sure that every patient has every option open to them it's kind of like getting eight or ten second opinions all at once in a single visit
0: all at once by a team that's that's just focused on this one patient with this one issue or whatever that's right. So that's got to be reassuring to a patient to know that, but um, also like as a physician to know that you've got colleagues that are weighing in and you know seconding your thoughts or what you what you want to do.
1: Well, it certainly makes it much more fulfilling, and uh, it ensures that we're always learning. Uh, As you can imagine, uh, at the pace of medical research, that it can be difficult for one doctor to keep up on absolutely every single detail. But when you have such a large group of people who are all trying to keep up in their own fields, uh, you learn something new every day, and so we all grow, and I think that allows us to provide even better care uh, to patients as time goes on.
0: So what sorts of things do you consider when you're coming up with a treatment recommendation for a particular patient with non-small cell lung cancer? Um...
1: Well, the, the, there are two factors that I think are the most important. I always tell patients there are there are factors associated with their cancer, and then there are factors associated with them as an individual. Uh, so we can talk about things that are best for a given cancer in terms of treatment options, uh, but that has to dovetail with what's best for the patient. And, and uh, the patient actually is uh, has a big role in deciding what's best for them. I think you know we're pretty good at giving people uh, options, but uh, in determining what's best, it's a much more complicated decision because it has to do with a patient's values, uh, it has to do with their family, uh, it has to do with their fears, their anxieties uh, and things that are important to them. And uh, it has to do with a patient's physiology. Obviously, when you're taking out pieces of, uh, of people's lungs or treating their lungs, you know, you have to take into account their breathing. If you're considering surgery, how much surgery can they tolerate? Uh, do they have risks for anesthetics? So there's really a lot of things that have to be taken into account before deciding kind of what is the best, quote unquote, treatment for a given patient.
0: And so the patient and their family probably weigh in considerably on what what matters to them, and, I mean, this is a major, what I would consider a major surgery, right? So um, it has an impact on the rest of the family and the rest of their life that they, so...
1: Yeah, it's, it's, these are things they don't teach you in medical school. I mean, you know, as uh, as my career has progressed, we've been treating older and older patients, for example, and, you know, sometimes elderly patients are taking care of elderly spouses and uh, have other commitments, and sometimes they have to make complicated treatment decisions that are going to affect the rest of their families, and they have to make those decisions. And so sometimes even the health of other people in the family have an impact on how a patient is going to be treated or determine what is the best treatment for them. Them.
0: Well, let me remind our listeners this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with the division chief for thoracic surgery at Upstate, Dr. Jason Wallen. Um, I'd like to talk with you about a paper you wrote recently with Dr. Jeffrey Bogart, who's a radiation oncologist, about lung cancer treatment options for patients with non small cell variety. Um, and I guess to start with, do, do tumors in the lungs necessarily need to be treated? I mean, what happens if you do nothing?
1: Well, it depends on the, uh, on the tumor. There are certain varieties of non-small cell lung carcinoma which uh, can be treated what we call watchful waiting, and uh, that's a very new concept, and it's certainly not a majority of tumors. But we are starting to realize that there are some very indolent varieties that can be observed. And in fact, you know, we may determine based on radiographic characteristics or how something looks on an X-ray that something is likely to be one of these so called uh, minimally invasive cancers. Uh, And uh, we may decide not to even biopsy them and just to observe them because we know there are certain characteristics on on imaging, on CT scans, which will indicate that a tumor is becoming more aggressive and may need to be treated. Uh, But sometimes the risk of the treatment is actually higher than the risk of the disease itself. But still, the vast majority of non-small cell lung carcinomas should be treated, and most patients should be offered some form of treatment.
0: Okay. And it used to be, when when this kind of got started, that um, treatment meant opening up the patient's chest and removing the entire lung. But it's not at all that today most of the times, right?
1: No, it's not. I think, uh, as we've seen in many types of cancers, we're moving towards trying to remove less and less of people's bodies uh, in order to treat them. Uh, Unfortunately, in 2017, the vast majority of early-stage cancers in all parts of the body are treated surgically, uh, at least to get the best long-term survival opportunities. And even as a surgeon, I still think that surgery is a pretty barbaric treatment, and I think we're all looking to put ourselves out of business at some point. But uh, Today, it's still the state of the art. And so the critical question is, how can we remove less and get the same good results? And so whereas they used to remove the entire lung, the standard today in 2017 is to remove the entire lobe. And we just completed uh, enrolling patients in a, in a very large uh, national study trying to determine if we can remove less than a lobe and still get the same good results. But the, those d- uh, results will take some time to, to learn.
0: So just part of a... And and, um, uh, I guess I didn't realize the lungs are not symmetrical. One has two lobes and one has three.
1: That's correct. And then each of the lobes are divided into segments. And so there are a total of 18 segments to the lungs. And uh, we can perform minimally invasive operations to remove only segments. And we do that frequently still for very small tumors that are near the edge of the lung, and particularly for patients who have limited lung function.
0: So do cancers not travel from one segment to the other?
1: They certainly can, and sometimes a cancer may straddle more than one segment, in which case removing a segment may not be appropriate. Um, So where the tumor is has a tremendous impact on which surgical options a patient may have. Also, the size of the tumor is really important.
0: So um, give me kind of a a guideline on small. what, what is small, like how small is small?
1: Depends on the size of the segment that the lung is in. Okay. It's really uh, uh, a matter of looking at the size of the tumor versus the margin uh, or the normal uh, tissue around the tumor that you think you can achieve when removing it. So, a small tumor that we write on the edge of where you cut the lung uh, probably wouldn't be a good surgical option. So, generally speaking, we want, if you have a one centimeter tumor, for example, you want to get at least a one centimeter margin. Margin of normal tissue around around it. So obviously the bigger a tumor gets, the more difficult it becomes to get those margins. Now that's when you're talking about removing part of a lobe. Bigger tumors, uh, you take the lobe and that's it. Uh, Margin becomes less of a concern as long as it's negative.
0: So how big are um, tumors when you typically discover them? Like how big do they have to be to be discovered?
1: Uh, It's...
0: uh, I guess it varies.
1: It does vary a lot. Um, They can be very, very small. It depends on the quality of the CT scan that is obtained initially. So the the higher the resolution of the scan, the smaller the tumor that can be detected. What becomes difficult is actually knowing that it's a tumor. And so for very, very small lesions, typically you have to follow them over a period of time before you can actually determine that they're a cancer or before they become big enough to be actually uh, biopsiable. And sometimes... uh, Uh, that actually takes quite a long time. When we see very small tumors, uh, we may ask patients to come back for a CT scan, sometimes in three months, sometimes in six months, sometimes even a year later for very, very small tumors because it will take that long before something gets big enough that we can really assess it. And There are actually national guidelines that uh, guide us as to what the interval uh, should be between CT scans for patients with small pulmonary nodules.
0: All right, so let's go through the most typical options. I mean, you've mentioned the lobectomy where you remove the lobe, and a segment where you remove just a segment. Um, how do they differ in terms of like risk to the patient? I mean, would the patient know any? different to, to those? Or?
1: It's a great question and uh, it seems logical that if we remove less lung that patients should notice it less, um, but it actually hasn't been proven that patients will notice a big difference in their breathing or that we can demonstrate a reliable difference in, in the results on breathing tests after surgery. What we do know is that patients who have limited pulmonary function, we can decrease the risk of an operation or the, decrease the risk of complications after surgery like pneumonia if we remove less lung. And so that's really the place where we focus those more specific operations. But for example, if we took a patient who had an entire lobe removed versus who had a segment removed, and we tried to demonstrate that the pulmonary function of the patient who had less lung removed was better, we, uh, we don't actually have that data to show that there is an X percentage difference if you have a smaller operation versus a bigger operation. So for the most part, patients who are candidates to have a lobectomy, we recommend that they have that because we do have evidence that the chance that the cancer will grow back where we cut it is less. Uh, when we take out the entire lobe. Now that's been called into question. That's why we've redone clinical trials to look at that because we think for small tumors again that are near the edge of the lung that you probably don't need to do a lobectomy. So that's really what we need to learn at this point in 2018 uh, as to where is that line? Where is the cutoff where it's okay to take out less than a lobe?
0: Now are there um, other things that are recommended along with surgery that help Maybe reduce the risk of cancer returning?
1: At this point, uh, people have tried many times to show that adding radiation can help patients who've had uh, more limited lung resections completed, but that really hasn't panned out. So at this point in time, it's usually either surgery or radiation when we're talking about local treatment for lung cancer.
0: And so the patients have to weigh that, and well, in the team, the multidisciplinary team maybe would come up with a recommendation, right?
1: We often do, um, but we typically will give patients both options. Uh, for patients who are healthy enough to undergo surgery, we almost always recommend surgery, and even the radiation oncologists will recommend patients to have surgery, because even though we lack solid clinical trial evidence to demonstrate the superiority of surgery, uh, the experience, our clinical experience, really points us in that direction. Uh, We are currently offering certain high-risk patients, clinical trial, to try to compare limited operations with radiation therapy to see if there is a benefit for patients with limited pulmonary function or other risk factors, but it's still a big question okay and so but patients still have an option both treatments are very very good and very very effective and so we do offer patients and it's really a question of potentially getting a better outcome in the long term when it comes to cancer survival with surgery versus having a big improvement in in post-surgical complications with radiation. For example, radiation treatment really is a much easier treatment for patients to go through with only a few treatments that are very quick, painless for the most part, and nearly complication-free, whereas surgery will never be able to offer that. Mm -hmm. But we do have the possibility that for certain patients, you get a better result on the back end in terms of long-term survival.
0: Very good. Well, so even though lung cancer remains one of the most common causes of cancer death, there appear to be many options for extending life these days so
1: there are and it's getting better and better. With patients enrolled in lung cancer screening, we're discovering more patients at an early stage. And if we discover lung cancers at earlier stages, we save a lot more people.
0: Right. Well thank you for sharing this information. My guest has been Dr. Jason Wallen, the medical director for the thoracic oncology program at Upstate and the Division Chief for Thoracic Surgery. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Healthlink on Air. Next up, a study that looks at patients' diets during treatment for glioblastoma on Upstate's HealthLink On Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on air. With me in the studio today is Dr. Larry Chin. He's the chair of neurosurgery and medical director of the neuro-oncology program at Upstate. And Hans Kim, who's a fourth-year medical student and aspiring oncologist. Uh, They believe that diet may be able to improve the outcome for people who are being treated for a cancerous brain tumor known as glioblastoma. Thank you for both of you being here.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Um, Dr. Chen, let's just start though by explaining a little about what glioblastoma is for our listeners.
2: Uh, a glioblastoma is a malignant brain tumor. And in fact, it is the most common type of malignant brain tumor. Um, it is typically seen in adults, uh, generally uh, older uh, rather than younger adults. Uh, And it's characterized by the fact that it's fast-growing, but it also spreads into the brain. And it's this quality of spreading into the brain that makes it very difficult to treat and also makes it impossible to remove with surgery. So it's critical in the treatment of glioblastoma that in addition to surgery to try to remove as much of the tumor as possible— that you add other treatments, and traditionally that is radiation therapy and chemotherapy. Um, And as you'll hear, maybe there are some other techniques of uh, attacking the tumor that don't rely on what traditional radiation and chemotherapy do to a tumor.
0: Or may help those work better. Exactly. All right. Um, So Hans, how did you get interested in whether diet... um, plays a role in any of this or could sway the treatment in any way?
4: So uh, as an undergrad student at the University of Pennsylvania back in 2007, I had this, um, a trip to, uh, uh, Germany where I attended a conference that was probably one of the early days of cancer metabolism conference. And there I learned about the phenomenon called the Warburg effect. So the Warburg effect is really the principle of how we detect cancer these days because, um, if you're suspicious of having a cancer, the first imaging tool the, the oncologist will order is gonna be PET skin, which is a positron emission tomography. And simply what they do is they inject sugars, uh, radio labeled sugars. So wherever the sugar follows, that's where the cancers are. So uh, the thought was, if we're using, you know, this kind of interesting idea to detect cancer, why not uh, use it for therapeutic purposes? Uh, and I was really fortunate to work with people uh, who was working for Dr. Craig Thompson. Uh, back then, he was the director of the Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania, who later became uh, the director of the, uh, at Sloan-Kettering, New York City, for his, uh, for his achievement in cancer metabolism. So that's when I started really, uh, I got interested in cancer metabolism, the whole idea of uh, possibly using a dietary intervention to help cancer patients.
0: So the idea that um, sugar can help us um, uh, see an image of where the cancer is located, maybe there's a way to have uh, radiation directed to the cancer areas? Is that the same kind of theory? Um,
4: not, not necessarily. So, I mean, the imaging tool is really to detect cancer. Uh, but the therapeutic purpose of taking advantage of this unique property of cancer, having a sweet tooth, is a little bit more complex and okay. uh, more You know, complicated, but the idea is that perhaps uh, we may be able to manipulate the sugar intake or the or the carbohydrate intake would eventually become sugars uh, to cancer patients to optimally provide the best uh, outcome along with the conventional radiation treatment. That's really the idea.
0: Well, let me ask this: What do we know about how the food that we eat affects the cells that make up a glioblastoma? does maybe Dr. Chen can?
2: Well, cancer is a very fast-growing cell, and so it needs uh, ready sources of energy to um, to keep up its growth, um, and so it uh, it relies on sugar, um, like a sugar high. Uh, it that's a you know a quick source of energy, um, and it also relies on on uh, blood vessels. And so uh, cancers and uh, glioblastoma is no different, also does things to induce blood vessels to grow into it. And so every tumor needs a source of energy to keep dividing. And I think that that is is really the idea behind dietary therapy, which is to uh, target um, this need for energy um, and, and that's what makes it different from other forms of therapy uh, that are more like toxins, things that you do to a tumor um, that injure the tumor because you're doing something bad to it. You're killing it in some way. And I think uh, the idea with the dietary maneuvers is you're trying to starve the tumor. So it's a different way at getting at a tumor cell.
0: And the, when we talk about the diet that you're looking at in this study, which we'll talk about, um, we're look, you're looking at a ketogenic diet? So That's right.
4: And, and maybe Hans right. uh, so, can describe that. Right. So I think the public is probably more familiar with the Atkins diet. Um, low-carb? Low-carb diet. So it's very similar to Atkins diet. But it's a little bit more extreme form of low-carb diet. Uh, usually uh, the carbohydrate intake is limited to um, 2% of the entire uh, food intake, um, and mostly fatty, uh, fat, uh, 90% of the fat, and the rest of the, um, the component of the food is, is usually protein. So it's a very extreme form. Uh, just to give you a number, um, the, at least the trial we're doing, we're going to be asking patients to be on less than 20 grams of carb every day,
0: so people do the low carb diets have been popular cause people are trying to lose weight on them. And Correct. if I understand it correctly, it's designed to get the body to burn fat or more fat as a primary fuel rather than exactly. sugar. Right? Yes. So how, um, how does that work with cancer or the whatever the cells that make up the glioblastoma?
4: Sure. So that's, that's a very good question. And I'm, I'm just going to go back to your initial question about how does this diet specifically affect the glioblastoma cells? Um, there is a cell in vitro study data, which was published in 2005, um, again, from the Dr. Craig Thompson's group when I was at the university, you know, back in the university, my undergrad. Um, so people can look it up. Uh, the, what Dr. Thompson did is uh, he used this glioblastoma cells in culture. So this is all done in cells. In, in a laboratory. In a laboratory, Yes. And he transformed the glioblastoma cells with a, the with a gene called AKT. It's, a, it's an extremely important uh, s- one, part of the signaling um, pathway, it, which is involved in cancer metabolism. And those glioblastoma cell lines that overexpress this AKT gene were completely addicted to glucose. Hmm. And what he did is he deprived those glucose and he showed that all these. AKT overexpressing glioblastoma cells died, whereas normal cells were able to utilize fat without having any glucose, uh, a pathway called gluconeogenesis. And then um, what he did is he applied a drug that activates the gluconeogenesis pathway in those AKT transformed glioblastoma cells, and, they, and he basically rescued all those glioblastoma cells, showing that these Akt-transformed glioblastoma cells c- could not utilize the fat; they were dependent on 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 simple glucose, which is simple sugars. Um, so that's the that's the data we have. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that happens in the actual glioblastoma because these glioblastoma they're not Akt-overexpressing cells. This is a manipulated glioblastoma cells. Um,
0: but the normal cells are able to metabolize this, and the cancer ones. have trouble
4: correct okay yes so that's really the selectivity Um,
0: so uh, when we talk about diet though what are the types of foods that a person following this who has a glioblastoma or what types of foods would they eat and what types of foods would they not be eating
4: so anything any food that's going to break down into uh, a simple sugars which is glucose uh, they should be avoiding those foods and it's very hard to do that because a lot of the processed foods we have uh, is they all have carbohydrates in it. Um, so anything anything that can potentially be broken down into simple sugars, those foods should be all avoided.
0: Okay, is so it a hard diet
4: to follow? Then, well, the, so that includes um, bread, <laughs> pretty much starch, every starch, wow.
2: pasta. You know, those are all carbohydrates Mm -hmm. that get broken down into glucose in addition to obviously avoiding anything that is has sugar in it and so this is a very extreme adkins diet you could think of it in that way Um, so
0: you're eating vegetables
2: vegetables fat protein
4: you could probably if if you could live on bacon
0: it's okay to have that the would bacon. Be, bacon would be a good <laughs>
4: choice. Steak <laughs> would be a good choice.
0: But um, again, this is just for the time period when you're um, preparing for treatment or during treatment.
4: Correct. Radiation correct. treatment. Correct. Yes, specifically okay. along with radiation.
0: Okay. All right. So the study, you've put together a study, um, and that will be launching soon. Um, how is that set up? You'll be looking for people um, newly diagnosed or...
2: Yeah, so we're, we're looking for patients uh, with glioblastoma, um, and, uh, and the idea is that, um, that this is going to be part of their regular treatment. So this is not treatment independent of what we know works, which is radiation um, and chemotherapy. Uh, but added on top of that will be this ketogenic diet. Uh, and Hans can maybe describe exactly how we're going to control that.
4: Sure, sure. So um, once, once we are suspected of glioblastoma, we'll, there's going to be surgery to resect the tumor. And after the biopsy, we'll know for sure that this is glioblastoma. That's the only way to confirm the diagnosis. Uh, and then they have about two weeks, one or two weeks, before the radiation kicks in, uh, along with a chemo uh, drug called temozolomide. Um, and the great thing about radiation is it's a daily uh, treatment. So a patient will go to the radiation oncology department, get the radiation, about, te- which takes about 10 or 15 minutes every day. So for us, it's kind of easy to check the, the monitor, you know, patients. You'll see them whether, every day. Right, exactly. So we'll, we can get the blood drawn. Uh, we can take a breath test to see, you know, if there's a appropriate ketone levels in their body, which is the, really the hallmarks of whether they're maintaining uh, a state called ketosis. Now, but I really want to caution the people out there that ketosis is not the same as diabetic uh, ke- 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 uh,
0: ketoacidosis. Uh, ketoacid. They're not okay. the same
4: thing. Uh, ketosis simply means that your your body is a state of utilizing fat, which does happen in a, in, a, in a DKA patients, but they're not the same thing. So, okay. um, no reason to. But be that's scared. something
0: you can test for or monitor every day. They come absolutely in for, okay. Um, And Dr. Chen mentioned this is not instead of, this is in addition to the treatment that they would be receiving anyway.
2: Right. Uh, The idea is that um, because this is a different mechanism of attacking the tumor, uh, hopefully this will be synergistic so that it will add on top of the effectiveness of the uh, traditional treatments and maybe make them more effective. So it'll potentiate the effect of the traditional radiation and chemotherapy.
0: Now, is it, is this ketogenic diet, is that safe for someone?
4: It's, if it's done correctly, it's a very safe thing. Um, Personally, I have an experience with my mom who went through a stage four head and neck cancer treatment, uh, who had to rely on 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 a tube for her feeding. And I, I, we decided to put our own a ketogenic diet. So I myself had experienced it. Um, When I say if it's done correctly, what that means is you wanna make sure how much carbs you're eating every day. And most of the people don't know that. So once we figure out how much carbs average they eat, we slowly taper down the carbohydrate intake. And if you do it correctly under the guidance, um, it's a very safe um, diet.
0: Are there um, side effects that a patient would recognize? Or is-
4: yes, um, there's a thing called keto flu. So, some people who's really, they're, when they're, you know, most of our bodies are really used to the carb rich diet. So, you know, it's kind of adjustment that, you know, the body goes through. So, you'll have a little bit of kind of flu like symptoms, uh, but nothing really serious.
0: And you pretty much adapt to it after your Yes, yes. And again, this is only during the time that they're being treated with radiation, which what does that usually take?
2: Typically a radiation treatment course is six
4: weeks.
0: Okay. So someone who could devote themselves for six weeks?
4: Correct, correct. Now not everyone will be able to comply this diet. It's a very it's a very hard diet to comply with. Um but so we're gonna probably stratify all the patients. Some will stick to the diet one week, two weeks, three weeks. But I we you know, we believe at least I believe that will make a bit of a difference.
0: Interesting. Well thank you so much for coming in and talking about this. Very interesting. My guests have been the chair of neurosurgery and the medical director of the neuro oncology program, Dr. Larry Chin, and fourth year medical student and aspiring oncologist, Hans Kim. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Coming up next, what you can do to reduce your risk of cancer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on air. Most of us realize there are things we can do or not do to reduce our risk of developing cancer. Here to share the latest principles of cancer prevention is Dr. Leslie Coleman. She's the Associate Director for Community Outreach for the Upstate Cancer Center. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, is it true that lifestyle modifications can prevent up to 42% of cancers? That is absolutely true. And That means that close
3: to half of all the cancers that we diagnose now could have been prevented
0: by lifestyle changes. That's really a huge number. It is. Okay. Um, So the big one that we've probably all heard before has to do with tobacco. Right. Um, And that's not just uh, smoking and lung cancer. There's other cancers that are affected, Right. right? Tobacco use in all forms is linked to
3: a number of different types of cancer Lung, mouth, throat, pancreas, bladder, cervix, kidney. And tobacco use is the cause of the
0: more than half of the cancer deaths in the whole world. And tobacco being cigarettes, chewing tobacco, secondhand smoke, e-cigarettes, all of that. All of that. Now, e-cigarettes are not a tobacco product, but they
3: have nicotine in them, and there's some very new preliminary evidence that shows that at least in a mouse model, the nicotine itself can create changes in the DNA, which are precursors
0: to cancer. That you so up for, stay tuned. Interesting. Now, for someone who um, is a smoker or has been a smoker for many years, is it worthwhile um to quit now or has the damage already been done It's never too late
3: to quit Besides risk of cancer smoking and tobacco use causes so many other diseases including heart and vascular disease and stroke and the minute you stop smoking those risks begin to subside your lungs stop deteriorating at such a fast rate And eventually your cancer risk does go down, although never as low as a never smoker.
0: Okay, that's good to know.
3: Now, what about diet? Diet is very important in cancer prevention. The two main things in diet are to eat a healthy diet, meaning plenty of fruits and vegetables, and avoiding obesity and limiting red meat, and particularly grilled and processed meat, such as hot
0: dogs, lunch meat, etc. Okay. Um, and it, it, the, are you saying that vegetarian is healthier in terms of cancer prevention? or not? In terms of meat, it's mostly red meat. And
3: even for sure worse is the processed meat. The bacon and sausage are very much cancer-causing agents. Grilled meat as well. But luckily, you can reduce that risk by marinating your meat and throwing the marinade away. Don't make a sauce out of it before you grill or broil meat because the burnt meat, no matter how delicious, is a cancer-causing factor.
0: And marinating ahead of time will prevent it It from... It reduces it greatly. Okay. Does it matter, the marinade?
3: No, I don't think it really matters. Usually they have some acid on it. Um, Usually there's vinegar or lemon juice and maybe some healthy oil, some herbs. I've even read that rosemary and thyme are a little helpful in terms of reducing these factors that form when you grill red meat.
0: Okay. Well, while we're talking about diet, what about alcohol? Because I've seen both ways on that. that it's... Yes.
3: So alcohol in terms of cancer is definitely a risk factor. Excess use of alcohol can increase your risk of cancer of the breast, colon, lung, kidney, and liver. And the maximum amount of alcohol that is safe is two drinks a day for men and one drink a day for women and a drink is uh, twelve ounces of beer, five ounces of wine, or a shot of hard spirits. And we're learning even more subtly that as much as little as a half a glass of wine a day can increase a woman's
0: risk of breast cancer. Interesting. And but you emphasized excess use is more dangerous, or. Right. Well, more is
3: worse for sure. Okay. There's very little that's really safe in terms of cancer risk. We recommend that if you already drink, do so in moderation—less than one drink a day for women and less than two drinks a day for men. If you don't drink, don't start for any supposed health benefits because it has a negative effect on other aspects too. of health. Yes.
0: Is it um, true too that there's uh, something about a combination of smoking and drinking together that makes the, that increases the risk even more?
3: Yes. There are certain cancers that are highly uh, related to both smoking and drinking. For instance, cancer of the esophagus. However, we believe that there's substances in both alcohol and tobacco that can make other carcinogens more effective. They facilitate each other. So that's a particularly bad
0: combination. Okay. Well, related to food and diet um, is weight. And uh, what does weight have to do with cancer?
3: Well, we really recommend that everybody maintain a healthy weight. And we've learned now that after tobacco use, Obesity is the second most prevalent cause for cancer. And this has partly to do with diet and much to do with factors we're not clear of, but the fat that accumulates in various parts of the body, especially inside the abdomen, produces toxic substances and make people much more prone to cancer. Especially obese women have a much higher rate of breast cancer and endometrial cancer than normal weight women. So it really is an unfortunate high
0: risk factor for cancer. okay? Well, I've got some more questions, but first let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith talking with the Associate Director for Community Outreach for the Upstate Cancer Center, Dr. Leslie Coleman. Um, What about sun protection? Is that still important? That's still very important
3: because skin cancer is the most common form of cancer and bad skin cancers that can really limit your life, such as melanoma, are more common than they used to be. We recommend that you avoid the midday sun, stay in shade and cover up as much as possible. And use sunscreen very liberally. Use a lot. Smear it on and repeat. And do not use artificial tanning lamps, sunbeds. Spray on tan is okay because that doesn't have sunlight. But tanning beds are really bad. And we're happy to see that the use of tanning beds by teenage girls is starting to diminish a little bit. So we really hope that pretty soon no one under the age of 18 would be even allowed to use a tanning bed. We're not there yet, but we hope that this use will continue to decline because it's been cause of a large number of
0: melanomas in young women. Okay. Well, that is good news. Now, people from older generations especially may be surprised to hear that there are immunizations that can provide some protection against cancer. So tell us about those. Yes, there's two in particular.
3: One is a hepatitis B vaccination. Hepatitis B is one of the causes of liver cancer. Liver cancer is also caused by hepatitis C, which is particularly prevalent among people of the baby boomer generation. Right. Unfortunately, we don't have a vaccine for that yet. But we recommend that all baby boomers be tested for hepatitis C and be treated for it if it's found to prevent the development of liver cancer. However, hepatitis B does have a vaccine and people in general should be vaccinated against that. Most important right now, what we've recently developed and learned is human papillomavirus or HPV vaccination. This is a vaccination that should be given to every child, boy and girl, between the ages of 11 and 13. They have to have two shots a few months apart. Used to be three, so it's easier now. And it's most effective when given at the age of 11 or 12. If it's not administered till the mid-teens, the immune system is not as effective at processing it. So your best shot at good immunity is between the ages of 11 and 12 and this can almost completely eliminate cancer of the cervix and also greatly reduce cancers of the anus, penis and some other
0: cancers that we're just learning about now. Okay. And these are part of recommend- recommended childhood vaccinations. Right. This now, is so.
3: part of a routine cancer or routine vaccination schedule in children. And in fact, if you look at routine well child care, it's all based on healthy diet, encouraging physical activity, preventing smoking, getting appropriate vaccinations. So it's all part of cancer care, keeping your baby out of the sun. So we are practicing cancer prevention from the time
0: a child is born, and this should continue throughout life. Okay. Well, I want to ask you about environmental factors as well, um, things that, that are preventable, but um, air, uh, air pollution, is that right? Still air there?
3: pollution is coming to be seen as more and more a risk factor for lung cancer. We know that asbestos is a risk factor for cancer. radon exposure is a risk factor for lung cancer and heavy metals, nickel, mercury, people who work in these industries, it's pretty well protected now for workers in these industries. But in years past, exposure to some of those were definite causes of cancer. Radium used to be used on watch dials to Mm -hmm. make them light up in the dark. And the young women who did that work died extremely commonly from a very awful cancer. That was back in the first half of the 20th century.
0: Okay. All right. Well, let me ask you about um, annual checkups. When, If you're a relatively healthy person and you go to a primary care provider annually for a checkup, how much of that exam is focused on cancer? Well, the visit should be focused
3: a lot on prevention of all chronic diseases, including cancer. And this is coaching about diet, about tobacco cessation, about maintaining a healthy weight, about getting enough exercise, about checking the status of your hepatitis C and hepatitis B uh, exposure. And there are a couple of specific cancer prevention interventions. One is the PAP smear, which if it finds a precancerous lesion can that those problems can be treated and cured and cancer completely prevented. And that pap smear is for cervical cancer? Right. Okay. And for, um, for colorectal cancer, a test for colorectal cancer can identify polyps which are precancerous and they can be removed and cancer prevented. The other tests we have for cancer such as mammography, and CT scan for lung cancer are early detection. They don't prevent the cancer, they find it early. Prevention is always better than cure, even when a cancer's found early. But we do know that pap smear and colorectal cancer screening can
0: prevent precancerous problems developing into cancer. So that's part of the uh, annual exam is for the precancers, but also for early detection if possible.
3: If a patient is at risk for a certain type of cancer, then an appropriate screening test should be done.
0: All right. Well, terrific. Thank you so much for the information. I appreciate you being here. Um, my guest has been Dr. Leslie Coleman. She's the associate director for community outreach for the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
5: Ithaca poet Joyce Holmes McAllister has a new book of poems coming from Yellow Sofa Press. It's called Return and details her life in New York City as an aspiring writer and actress back in the 50s. For volume 17 of The Healing Muse, Joyce gives us two wonderful vignettes that demonstrate the wisdom that can come with age. The first one is called No Score. The other night I came downstairs wearing a warm flannel nightgown and ankle-high wool-lined slippers. I walked to my husband's chair, leaned over his shoulder, whispered, I'm not half bad looking for a woman of 75. He was watching the History Channel. Did you say something, dear? As he smiled at the television, never looked up. I crossed my eyes, shut my mouth. In 1969, the Yankees played the Red Sox on a warm September night. I slithered downstairs in my sheer summer negligee, heard the snap of the television, saw the screen go black. Next morning, I asked my husband, who won the game? He told me he had no idea. The second poem is called Writing It Out. When I became a widow, I wondered how to fit inside my single skin. That summer, without knowing why, I filled blank pages full of painful drivel, watched ink flow, turn to blurry squiggles, illegible, never to be read by anyone, not even me. But words opened grief, made it free to run its length across the page. Blueness smeared and watery, soggy secret syllables, unreadable. Left to dry, words I can't remember now, formed without my will. They softened pain, made spirit heal.
0: Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about the forthcoming hospital unit for child and adolescent psychiatric patients. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org, or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanking you for listening.